there. Pull up a chair. We're going to be talking about war criminals. Imagine that. I think the best way to be a war criminal is to, well, maybe not have any rules as far as what war criminals are, right? Any laws stopping you from being a war criminal? Or making sure that any laws that might make you a war criminal would be to your advantage, right? Well, there's a lot going on. I started out looking into, uh, well, Henry Kissinger just turned 100. Talk about a war criminal, right? And um, then I haven't gotten back to Cambodia. So Henry Kissinger really did a number on Cambodia. So today I'm going to be talking about all this war business, war criminals. Who are the real criminals in this thing, right? So first, I think part of the way that people in the United States in particular got their attitude about this thing about being the chosen one that you know anything we do in other countries is okay as long as it's over there and not here right I think a lot of this came from this idea called manifest destiny okay and that has been pretty much bred into generations of Americans so let and because I also want to talk more about who the world thinks are the biggest war criminals. So first, let's understand this manifest destiny part first and see how this moves into our thinking. The clip is only about three minutes long. It's called Manifest Destiny, How America Justified Westward Expansion. The Daily Dose, Manifest Destiny. During the first half of the 19th century, the United States population witnessed a near five-fold expansion due to high birth rates and a rising tide of immigration from Europe. Combined with the economic depressions of 1819 and 1839, westward migration exploded as Americans searched for new land and opportunities. In response, President Thomas Jefferson negotiated the Louisiana Purchase from France in 1803, which doubled the size of the United States, followed by the acquisition of Florida from Spain in 1819. By the time Texas gained statehood in December of 1845, the notion that the U.S. would inevitably expand to the Pacific Ocean had become so widely accepted in the minds of most Americans setting in motion a flood of migration and political will into what would become the American West. The term Manifest Destiny first appeared in an editorial published in the Democratic Review in the summer of 1845, when a writer made criticism of the lingering opposition to the annexation of Texas from Mexico, urging readers toward a national unity for the fulfillment of our Manifest Destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. That same summer, an article by John O'Sullivan in the New York Morning News referenced manifest destiny in light of the Oregon Territory, which was another vast swatch of land which American politicians and laymen alike were eager to assert control over. By the time the Oregon Territory joined the U.S. following a treaty with Great Britain, America was now embroiled in the Mexican-American War 
1848, which was driven by the spirit of manifest destiny as pioneers freely encroached upon Mexican land. When war ended with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 525,000 square miles were added to the United States land holdings, including what is now California, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, and Wyoming. While the conquering spirit of manifest destiny witnessed a near stunning territorial expansion over the first half of the 19th century, the unrelenting westward spread of Americans not only led to war with Mexico, but also witnessed the wanton mistreatment and dislocation of Hispanics, Native Americans, and other non-Europeans living in the path of westward settlers, at the same time fueling a contentious two-sided debate over which new territories and states would embrace the brutal institution of slavery, eventually leading a divided nation headlong into civil war. And there you have it, Manifest Destiny, today on The Daily Dose. If you yeah, like they, uh, something new every... they got it in everybody's head that they were the chosen oh. ones. So how did this get into people's heads? Well, by the psychopaths who came over to this country in clearly a murderous rage, right? Wiping out the Indians, if that part is true. Um, yeah, so... So I think that has to do with the attitude, and I'll also be talking here about words that they use against other countries to help generate this kind of an attitude. So when I was looking into Henry Kissinger, go look at Henry Kissinger's wife, Nancy Kissinger. We are living in a freak show. Nancy Kissinger clearly got the top end of the deal on the growth hormones. Just look for Nancy Kissinger. Okay. Anthony Bourdain, the late chef and television host Anthony Bourdain traveled extensively in Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, where his shows regularly repeated highlights of the legacy of the Vietnam War. In particular, Bourdain frequently trained trained his ire on former Secretary of State, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Secret Heat. So, this is a long word here, I'm having trouble with it. Secretary of State, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Secret Bombing Up Cambodia facilitator, accused war criminal, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger was secretly bombing Cambodia, okay? And isn't it interesting how they all get the Nobel Peace Prize? Now, don't forget, the Nobel Peace Prize was started by a person who created dynamite, okay? And this was Bourdain's quote about Kissinger in his 2001 book. Once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never be a, again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prov provoking, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Bolshevik. So part of what I'll be wandering through today is all this business about the Hague and stuff, right, and um, war criminals. 
how, how, how exactly have they defined war criminals? So to set the stage first, I will, the United States government just released a piece about their views on war criminals. So let's take a look at what they have to say here. It is, let me see here, and you can certainly reference this, it is from their own words, not have the time to make up anything, Congressional Research Service, informing the legislative debate since 1914. It is a congressional group, okay? It's called War Crimes, a Primer, updated March 30th, 2023. And we are right now in May the 27th, 2023. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has given rise to numerous accusations of war crimes. This legal sidebar addresses the sources and content of the law of war, also known as the Law of Armed Conflict or International Humanitarian Law, IHL, as it pertains to war crimes that occur in an international armed conflict. IHL applies to the conduct of war. It does not address the legality of the war itself. So for information about potential accountability for war crimes or international tribunals, CSR legal sidebars, the role of international, international tri tribunals in the response to the invasion of Ukraine. So they're, they're setting this up because people are saying that Russia should be charged with war crimes, okay? IHL is a combination of international treaties and customary international law. The Hague Convention of 1907 generally prescribes rules of conduct for armed forces, while the Geneva Conventions and Protocol additional to the Geneva Conventions of 12 August 1949 and related to the protection of victims of international armed conflicts addresses the rights of protected persons such as civilians, prisoners of war, in an international armed conflict. Not all states are parties to these and other treaties pertaining to the law of war, but many provisions are regarded as reflecting customary international law, which is binding on all states. Kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Okay. Certain principles undergird IHL and form the basis of the content of war crimes and serve to reduce unnecessary suffering during war. The most important principles are military necessity, humanity, and honor. The principles of distinction and proportionality flow from the first three. The Department of Defense Law of War Manual describes their interactions as follows. Military necessity justifies certain actions necessary to defeat the enemy as quickly and efficiently as possible. Conversely, humani humanity forbids actions unnecessary to achieve that object. Proportionally requires that even when actions may be justified by military necessity, such actions may not be unreasonable or excessive. Distinction underpins the party's responsibility to comport their behavior with military necessity, humanity, and proportionality by requiring parties to a conflict to apply certain legal categories, principally the distinction 
between the armed forces and the civilian population. Lastly, honor supports the entire system and gives parties confidence in it. And this is the Congressional Research Service, U.S. government, okay? So, nice words, aren't they? Uh, because this is all about whether they go after the civilians or not, right? Okay. The main purpose of the law of armed conflicts are protecting combatants, non-combatants, and civilians from unnecessary suffering. Providing certain fundamental protections for persons who fall into the hands of the enemy, particularly prisoners of war, military wounded, and sick, and civilians. Facilitating the restore, restoration of peace. Assisting the commander in ensuring the disciplined, ethical, and effective use of military force. Preserving the professionalism and humanity of combatants and preventing the degradation of warfare into savagery or brutality. United States law, the War Crimes Act of 1996. The War Crimes Act sets forth conduct the United States punishes as war crimes. Previously, only when U.S. nationals were involved as either perpetrator or victim would the conduct potenti potentially fall under these provisions. Congress amended the provision in January 2023 to provide courts jurisdiction over foreign nationals who are found in the United States and suspected of having committed war crimes anywhere. Such a prosecution requires the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General to certify that a prosecution by the United States is in the public interest and necessary to secure substantial justice, taking into consideration, among other things, whether it is possible to remove the offender to another jurisdiction for prosecution as well as potential adverse consequences for nationals, service members, or employees of the United States. To date, the United States has never... Let me see here. United States. Okay, I gotta get this wording right. Okay. The United States. Um, it's really tricky. You don't want to start putting the wrong words in here. Okay. Um, okay, they passed this law in January of 2023. Let me find my way back here. Okay. To date, the United States has never prosecuted anyone for violating the Act. The Act implements the United States' obligation under treaties and international law to hold perpetrators of war crimes accountable. A war crime under the Act includes conduct defined as a grave breach in the Geneva Convention of 1949 or prohibited by certain provisions of the Annex to the Hague Convention respecting the laws and customs of war on land in 1907. So what they're, they're using parts of these different things, okay? The Act further proscribes the willful killing of or causing serious injuries to civilians contrary to the provisions of the Protocol on Prohibitions or Restrictions on the Use of Mines, Booby Traps, and Other Devices. It also proscribes certain violations defined as a grave breach of common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention. 
So they have these grave breaches, okay, and I will read them because a lot of these things that are taking place appear to me to be a grave breach, okay? Grave breach, as defined in the Geneva Convention, include the following acts if committed against protected persons or property. Willful killing, torture or inhumane treatment, including biological experiments. Willfully causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health. Extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly. wantonly excuse me. Compelling a prisoner of war or other protected persons to serve in the forces of a hostile power. Willfully depriving a prisoner of war or other protected persons of the rights of fair and regular trial. Unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement and taking of hostages. Well, it's all sounding pretty good, isn't it? It sounds like these people from the United States are really on top of this thing, right? Well, so now we've got the Hague Convention, okay? If you violate the Hague Convention, you, you might be doing something like employing poison or poison weapons. <laughs> well, I don't know. Doesn't nuclear sound like a little bit of uranium tip thing sound a little bit like poison to kill or wound an enemy who having laid down his arms or having no longer means of defense has surrendered at discretion yeah so killing people shooting them in the back is probably not allowed as far as the Hague convention so um to destroy or seize the enemy's property unless such declaration or seizure be imperatively demanded as part of war to declare abolished, suspended, or inadmissible in a court of law their rights or actions. To attack or bombard by whatever means towns, villages, dwellings, or buildings that are undefended. So according to the Hague Defension Convention, um, bombing people out in territories, oh, I don't know, like maybe Cambodia, might be a little bit against the law. Um, to attack buildings dedicated to religion, art, science, or charitable purposes, historical monuments, hospitals, and places where the sick and wounded are collected, provided they are not being used at a time for military purposes. To pillage of a town or place, even when taken by assault. Really? So there's rules against the U.S. military going in and robbing villages of their last few resources? Well, let's see how this has worked out. Common Article 3, Article 3, common to the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, provides protections during armed conflicts, not of an in international nature, but also protects persons during international armed conflicts who are not entitled to protective status. So, yeah, people are, according to Geneva, their torture is um, nothing cruel or inhumane treatment the performing of biological experiments without a legitimate medical or dental purpose or endangering the body or health of such person or persons. Well, I could go on like a rocket right now with all this radiation stuff, now couldn't I, kids? So according to the Geneva Convention, it is not in the rules, it's against the rules to do biological experiments. Has anybody told the United States about this rule? Mutilating or maiming persons taking no active part in the hostilities. Well, intentionally causing serious bodily injury, rape, sexual assault or abuse, taking of hostages. No, no, these are against the laws. Okay, here's where it starts to get good. 
And this is, I'm still reading from the Congressional Research Service, okay, which just came out two months ago. Although the War Crime Act set forth conduct the United States considers serious war crimes, this is, this is the catcher, so let me start from the beginning here, okay. Under the category titled International Law, okay, although the War Crimes Act sets forth conduct the United States considers serious war crimes, the United States is not party to all treaties regarding the law of armed conflict, including notably additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Convention, which has regulated international and armed conflicts. This is a big one to write down. The Rome, R-O-M-E statue of the International Criminal Court, ICC. So the International Criminal Court is called ICC, okay? What you're looking for is the Rome statue, okay? So, um, the Rome, that, that probably provides the best of serious war crimes as accepted by the international community, community, right? Okay, the international community has accepted this ICC deal and the Rome statue, right? The United States is not party to the Rome statue, but took part in its negotiation, including regarding the inclusion of the covered war crimes. Neither Ukraine nor Russia is party to the agreement but Ukraine has agreed to accept the jurisdiction of the ICC so. for activities that occur on its territory since 2014, an issue discussed in this CSR legal sidebar. In addition to grave breaches of the Geneva Convention set forth above, the Rome Statute provides for punishment, and we're talking about punishing Russia, right? And Ukraine has said they're going to go along with this, okay? But the U.S. is a party to this, right? <laughs> so, they said, these are the statues from the Rome statue they're pointing out again, okay? Intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population as such or against individual civilians not taking direct part in hostilities. Going after civilians is a big deal, okay? Like a huge deal, okay? Intentionally directing attacks against civilian object, objects. Intentionally directing attacks against personnel, installations, material units, or vehicles involved in a humanitarian assistance or peacekeeping mission in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, as long as they are entitled to the protection given to civilians or civilian objects under the international law of armed conflict. So, another breach would be intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment, which would be clearly excessive in, retaliation, in, re, in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advance. So yeah, they're saying no excessive damage, right? Well, have you looked at any pictures of wars? attacking or bombarding by whatever means towns, villages, dwellings, or buildings which are undefended and which are not military objectives. Well, they might have mentioned that to the people in Vietnam when they were blowing up My Lai. Well, those My Lai villages, that was just one village, but I believe My Lai was what went on in all those villages. Just my opinion. Okay. 
intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term thing. Killing or wounding, having laid down their arms. So if you say truce, they're supposed to stop, right? Well, I think you kind of get the idea here, right? Okay, so... Um, well, okay, so that's what... Um, destroying or seizing the enemy's property unless such destruction or seizure be imperatively demanded by the necessities of war. All of these things are just, okay, employ bullets which expand or flatten easily in the human body, such as bullets with a hard envelope. Yeah, these people, uh, <laughs> oh, it's against the r rules too, employing poison or poisoned weapons. Now, is they're sending over depleted uranium, so I'm not really sure how to read this with a straight face. So, um, so, um, so, yeah, well, they're listing intentionally using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare by depriving them of objects indispensable for their survival, including willfully impending relief supplies. Well, I kind of think, and the last law here is the one that's the catcher, right? Constricting, constricting or enlisting children under the age of 15 into the national armed forces or using them to participate actively in hostilities. So I guess they draw the line at 15 years old. Good for them, right? Yeah, well that is your piece and I'll scan back up here so you can have the title to go looky looky for yourself. It is the Congressional Research Service War Crimes. A primer is the title and that is what their views on, but of course we don't want to get too crazy now because they don't abide by any things, right? So let me play this um, clip. Talk about hostilities against a nation of people. What happened in a nutshell was this. Kissinger and them plotted to get the US to secretly be bombing Cambodia. And um, well, participated in public with their record? I don't really know, and that's a good question. So let's play this clip about, it's called, Why Does, well, let me make sure I want to play the clip right now. Yeah, I talked about Anthony Bourdain, we played the Manifest Destiny, okay. Um, yeah, I'll play this Cambodia clip, because then I'm gonna get into, um, I wanna give you an example of the last two military leaders in the United States that were leading this country during the conflicts during World War II and stuff, to give you an idea of the mentality of people in this country, okay? Because that is really, really critical. Um, and also the words they use against these other countries and stuff. Here, let's play this clip first about Cambodia and um, what happened to the population in Cambodia. 1960s, the Kingdom of Cambodia has been in crisis. The country's pseudo-democratic system has been no match for its authoritarian government, and the population is one of the poorest in the region. Recent decades have seen war, genocide, and invasion. 
and some historians blame none other than the United States for the country's many tragedies. So why does Cambodia hate the U.S.? Well, Cambodia's long-term struggle largely stems from their involvement, or really lack of involvement, during the Cold War. While communists backed by the Soviet Union and anti-communists backed by the United States fought for control in Vietnam, Cambodia declared itself neutral. But its government allowed Vietnamese communists to use the border region as a supply route and safe zone, which proved to be a huge mistake. Why? Well, at the time, the Vietnam War was incredibly unpopular in the United States, and it was viewed as an ideological war, not one that would benefit Americans. By the time Richard Nixon took office in 1969, the U.S. was already in the process of withdrawing troops from the conflict and had scaled back bombing in the region. But Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, were committed to prolonging the war in hopes of defeating the communists. They sought to find another way to keep fighting without a heavy presence in Vietnam and without making it seem as though they were ramping up military operations. Their solution was to effectively hijack the United States military and secretly and illegally bomb Vietnamese forces hiding in Cambodia, a country with which the U.S. was not at war. Operation Menu, the first of two major bombing campaigns, was even kept secret from Congress. Also keep in mind that the U.S. has not declared war since World War II. And I believe when you don't declare war, you're probably not under custody of a lot of these acts and stuff. But I'm not an attorney. I am just guessing. According to an expose by New York Times writer Seymour Hirsch, in order to accomplish this, Kissinger and high-ranking military members created fake flight plans for bombers in Vietnam and then destroyed all evidence of their actual bombing targets in Cambodia. They even allegedly used a specially designated furnace to destroy records, according to testimony from the head of American military operations in Vietnam. From 1969 to 1973, the U.S. dropped half a million tons of bombs on Cambodia, killing more than 100,000 civilians. Overall, the U.S. dropped 6 million tons of bombs on Southeast Asia, which decimated the region and forged extreme resentment against anti-communist forces. Many historians believe that this resentment created a power vacuum for a disruptive and deadly regime to seize power in Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge was just that, a militant regime violently seeking power. They emerged from the very same North Vietnamese communist forces the U.S. had been trying to disrupt. Just two years after the end of the secret of bombing raids, the Khmer Rouge began a Cambodian genocide. From 1975 to 1979, they killed between one and a half and three million civilians, or about 25% of the population. The U.S.'s illegal bombing campaign never quite saw the same level of coverage as the concurrent Watergate scandal that took down Richard Nixon. Ironically, before the bombing was revealed, Kissinger even received a Nobel Peace Prize for bringing peace to Vietnam. He actually attempted to return the prize two years later when communist forces ultimately took over Vietnam. Today, opinion on Kissinger is split between seeing him as a war criminal versus a powerful foreign policy leader. Although relations have somewhat normalized since the 1970s, the deadly history between the U.S. and Cambodia has left a dark stain on America's reputation and the Cambodian population. While there's plenty of debate as to the influence and extent of the U.S.'s illegal actions, the lasting scars of war remain. Another country where the United States covertly... Well, that's what they did in Cambodia. The U.S. bombing Cambodia secretly set them up for this huge, huge genocide, which I'll have a little bit more on in a bit here. So, well, um, 
I'm going to put in this one character here just because, well, just because it's here. Okay. In the past, you look for it in the last, I don't know, couple of years, I did a show about General Curtis Emerson LeMay. No relationship to me. General Curtis Emerson LeMay, L-E-M-A-Y. Um, also, full disclosure, I was raised, uh, my father was a U.S. Air Force navigator, and he fought during Korea, and um, yeah, um, one thing about this, Curtis LeMay started this, um, he was a commander of the base that my father, um, the unit that my father belonged to, it was called the Strategic Air Command. What I found interesting, Strategic Air Command means SAC, S-A-C. What, what, what other words do you hear from SAC? Come on, just think for a second. S-A-C? How about sacrifice? I contend that it means sacrifice because we never heard the word Strategic Air Command. All we heard was SAC because that's where my father worked. So, Air Force General Curtis Emerson LeMay is a controversial figure. On the one hand, he served as commander of Strategic Air Command and later as Air Force Chief of Staff. He sh his shaping of American air power became to become one of the most deadly military forces in the history of the world, mostly due to its strategic nuclear weapons. On the other hand, he really wanted to use those nukes. He advocated nuclear bombs being used in Vietnam and drew up plans in 1949 to destroy 77 Russian cities in a single day of bombing. He even proposed a nuclear first strike directly against Russia. Any attempt to limit America's nuclear platform was met with criticism from LeMay. Discussing his civilian superiors, he was known to often say, I ask you, would things be much worse if Khrushchev were Secretary of Defense? So, yeah, so um, Curtis LeMay, okay, he has been referred to as a psychopath, but at the time he was known as America's psychopath, so everybody looked the other way. And I found out some interesting things about Curtis LeMay that have to do with the um, bombing in Japan. Okay, and also... The wording, it was, and I, I heard these words as a child, okay, but I'm not going to repeat what I heard, but this is what it says. It was common for Western diplomats to refer to the Japanese as monkeys and yellow dwarf slaves. So, um, they observed that the U.S. forces did not consider they were killing men. They were wiping out dirty animals. When you have a deal with a beast, you have to treat him as a beast. So um, what they did was they claimed that there were no civilians being bombed during Japan, okay? And the first allegation was by this one colonel, and they said the entire population of Japan is a proper military target. There are no civilians in Japan. The deliberate firebombings of Japanese cities are believed to have killed some 350,000 civilians. And so they went on to say, and this is how they 
summed up going against the Japanese. They said that the Japanese also were vicious, cruel, and racist. But Japanese attitudes and atrocities are well known. Those of the Allies are often forgotten because they were the good guys. So much so that simply to question the morality of the bombings now can be deemed unpatriotic. General Curtis LeMay in Air Force campaigns against Japan in 1945 and 1945. He also defied the established wartime policy of the United States. That policy called for precision daylight bombings of military targets. Instead, LeMay retrofitted his planes with napalm, excuse me, napalm canisters and dropped them at night over the northern suburbs of Tokyo, which were then the most densely populated areas in the world. Of course, there were no men of fighting age present. There were only women, children, and the elderly, packed in their wooden homes. On one evening, March the, March the 9th, 1945, LeMay's pilots were particularly lucky. There was a brisk wind that carried the flaming napalm across wide distances. The heat that was generated was so great that the few people who could get out of their homes in time and jump into the nearest river or lake were boiled to death. General LeMay had successfully presided over the murder of 100,000 innocent people. He also had a quip to give to posterity. There are no innocent civilians, so it doesn't matter to me so much to be killing innocent bystanders. General Curtis LeMay was a belligerent cold warrior who was portrayed in the satirical film Dr. Strangelove as a trigger-happy General Jack D. Ripper. Dr. Strangelove was made about General LeMay, okay? And this is, this is where, at a very key time, 60, 70 years ago, this was the United States military attitude, okay? Okay, after World War II, he served in the Pentagon, um, and then he transferred to Wiesbaden, Germany. Um, LeMay's first war plan, drawn up in 1949, proposed delivering the entire stockpile of atomic bombs in a single massive attack dropping 133 atomic bombs on 70 cities within 30 days. By the end of his term, the SAC was on constant alert and ready to execute an all-out atomic attack at a moment's notice. Because LeMay remained the SAC leader until June of 1957, and then he became the um, chief of staff. So, um, they talk about him and them having control, but that, that, that's not how it works. This guy was not a rogue person, okay? And they say, perhaps the two most dangerous of all generals were Curtis LeMay and his head of the strategic command, General Thomas Power. So you're looking for two dangerous people at the top, okay? But I'm going to focus on LeMay today. General LeMay is legendary for his mania to start World War III by goading the Soviet Union with unauthorized reconnaissance flights that penetrated their forbidden boundaries. 
Well, what else is new now? They're, 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 they act like they're penetrating Russia's boundaries by a proxy war in Ukraine. Okay, and this is where his buddy Power comes in. I'll just say a little bit about Power, okay? During Operation Crossroads, the 1946 atomic bomb test at Bikini Atoll, talked a lot about Bikini Atoll and Marshall Islands, easy to find, Powell was Power, excuse me, Power was assigned as assistant deputy. And what did he do there? Um, um, yeah, I can't remember why I was talking about him. Okay, but remember also that LeMay, when he left the military, he started the RAND Corporation, R-A-N-D, that think tank. Okay, and this is a quote that I'll tell you about this... Um, power person, okay, he was asked, um, when Rand proposed a counterforce strategy which would require SAC to restrain itself from striking Soviet cities at the beginning of a war, power countered with restraint. Why are you so concerned with saving their lives? The whole idea is to kill the bastards. At the end of the war, if there are two Americans and one Russian left alive, we win. And that should give you a glimpse into the leaders of the U.S. military. Okay, and this is a good one. This was about, this was a, from a, a book that I found that was written about, a lot of stories were written about LeMay, okay? And this kind of sums up. Meetings of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were alluded to by some as being a three-ring circus. General Curtis Emerson LeMay, Air Force Chief of Staff, was characterized by one observer as always injecting himself into situations like a rogue elephant barging out of a forest. There are many stories of LeMay's crudeness in dealing with his colleagues on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He found the meetings dull, tiring, and unproductive. Petulant and often childish when he didn't get his way, LeMay would light a cigar and blow smoke in the direction of anyone challenging his position. To show utter disgust, he would walk into the private Joint Chiefs of Staff toilet, leave the door open, urinate or break wind loudly, and flush the commode a number of aggravating times. He would then saunter calmly back into the meeting, pretending that nothing had happened. When angry with individual staff members, he would resort to sarcasm. If that failed, he would direct his wrath to the entire staff. Like I said, country, this United States, run by psychopaths. That's why they don't want any of us to understand what a psychopath is, right? Okay. Um, LeBay was it policy? I don't know. There's too much here. Um, if there... Were a mad rogue general who would lead a coup, it would appear to have been General Curtis LeMay. And he actually, after he um, was in the Air Force, he ran for office with Alabama Governor George Wallace, you know, the big racist guy. LeMay died in 1990. So, one of them's gone, I guess. Um, and this, this is just one quote between LeMay and um, his buddy Power. General Curtis LeMay may have been itchy to press the big red 
red button, but his protege and successor was even worse. LeMay described General Thomas Power as not stable and a sadist. When a RAND study advocated limiting nuclear strikes at the onset of a war with the Soviet Union, Power asked him, why are you so concerned with saving their lives? It's to kill the bastards. So this was Power who <laughs> came after LeMay, right? Okay. Okay, so let's get down here to, geez, where's the time going? Let's get down here to um, Kissinger. Okay, um, dominating Kissinger's entire time in power, there were the massive bombings of North Vietnam, which did nothing to turn or stop the war and the secret bombings of Cambodia. So the bombings of Cambodia, what it did was it destabilized the entire country of Cambodia. And then the Khmer, K-H-M-E-R, Rogue, R-O-U-G-E, moved into the vacuum and murdered at least two million more, roughly a quarter of the country's entire population. So yeah, um, this is their legacy, right? This is how they act. These, these are people who, cowards, to me, cowards are usually bullies, right? Bullies act like bullies because deep down they're cowards, right? They, they bomb people from planes. They destroy us in our homes with smart meters. They, they don't come after us directly, right? Because they're bullies and they're cowards, okay? And that makes them also psychopaths, right? So um, let me try to get up some energy here and see. Um, uh, because I was talking earlier about how Curtis LeMay had um, changed the bombing in Japan to go after the uh, people, right? Okay, and they're always lying to the U.S. public and acting like they're not really, um, so um, LeMay was also very concerned about being called a war criminal, okay? LeMay was no bleeding heart liberal. The U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff who had directed the assault over Japan in the final days of the Second World War he believed in the use of nuclear weapons and thought any action acceptable in the pursuit of victory. Two decades later, he would say of Vietnam that America should bomb them back into the snow ages. But he was also honest enough to recognize that the incineration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was not regarded as a war crime only because America had won the war. So in reflection, he realized that the only reason the U.S., and that bombing of Japan was not a war crime was because the U.S. won the war, okay? Almost as soon as the bombs had dropped, however, attempts began to justify the unjustifiable. On August the 9th, the day of the Nagasaki bombings, the U.S. President Harry Truman broadcast to the nation claiming that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base because we wished to avoid the killing of civilians. And this was a direct quote. He told the public the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and said it was a military base. In fact, more than 300,000 people lived in Hiroshima, of whom up to 40% were killed, most in the most grotesque fashion. And I can attest to that. Getting hit with radiation is a very grotesque thing. My little toes are now pretty much all black on my right foot. 
But you know what? I don't give a shit. This isn't my home. This isn't my life. I will keep talking as long as I feel like opening these little lips up and I can turn that microphone on. And when you put things into perspective like that, you can ride through a lot of pain. Just remember, this is not reality here, okay? Okay. 40% of the people were killed. Many commentators, including Truman, have also argued that without the bombings, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of U.S. troops would have been killed in any invasion of Japan. They're always saying, well, yeah, yeah, we killed a lot of people, but you know, they killed more of us, right? However, military, allied military leaders did not, however, see the necessity. So this one person didn't see the necessity. Huh. Uh, Eisenhower agreed that they were completely unnecessary. It's always easy for these people to later say, oh, that really wasn't necessary. And now people still quote Eisenhower as being against the, I don't know, it's just too crazy. But anyway, so, and here is where I, my eyes opened up, okay? So, because remember, I've been saying all along that I believe that the reason the United States did not enter World War II right away was because they were busy with that Manhattan Project cooking up those bombs and bombing, man, bombing excuse me, Marshall Islands, right? And the Bikini Atoll. So, and I found it right here. So, and also, here's another thing, which is really insane, okay? There was a, an official strategic bombing surveys in 1946 concluded that Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped. Sounds a little sadistic, doesn't it, to you? Because remember, the leaders of Japan are part of the thing, right? I mean, they're turning on their own people here and bombing them. So, um, and then, then I thought, well, okay. So they knew back then that Japan would have likely surrendered regardless of the atomic bomb, right? And then this next line is key. There is evidence that the Americans had been preparing to use the A-bomb against the Japanese as early as 1943 and that, in the words of General Leslie R. Groves, director of the Manhattan Project of the U.S. nuclear program, the target was always expected to be Japan. So the Manhattan Project, the director, General Leslie R. Groves, G-R-O-V-E-S, says right here, the target was always expected to be Japan. I rest my case. I was just kind of guessing before, but, well, they were hanging back from the war so they could make this bomb to get Japan. Uh, yeah, Curtis LeMay, I don't have any more to say about him. Um, it was nice that um, to an adoring American public during the war against the Axis powers, LeMay was old iron pants and usually described as cigar-chomping, gruff, or brusque. He was a strict disciplinarian who asked much of his flyers, but no more than he asked of himself. Well, yeah, he got everybody else to murder people along with him, right? This is why they always want to have people focused on all these 
crazy stories about serial killers, right? These people, <laughs> the Ted Bundy stories are nothing compared to the, the murders these people do, right? Okay, I don't have any more to say about LeMay. Um, we played the Cambodia clip. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about what happened in Cambodia, okay? Um, the Cambodian genocide was a systematic persecution and killing of Cambodian citizens by the Khmer Rogue under the leadership of Communist Party of Kamapuchu, C-A-M-P-U-C-H-E-A, General Secretary of Poi Poi, P-O-L-P-O-T. So that is the word you're looking for, okay? Okay, so the dates of this genocide, because this genocide was set up because of throwing all the instability into Cambodia to start with, okay? So this genocide, April 17th, 1975 to 7 January 1979 lasted three years eight months and 20 days the target Cambodia's previous military and political leadership business leaders journalists students and doctors lawyers Buddhists champs thighs Muslims Chinese Cambodians Christian Cambodians intellectuals Vietnamese Cambodians so basically it kind of sounds to me like what they did in China, they just hauled off all the intellectuals, right? So, but the attack types are a little bit concerning, right? How did they attack these people? Well, by genocide, classicide, politicide, ethnic cleansing, extrajudicial killings, torture, famine, forced labor, human experimentation, forced disappearances, deportation, crimes against humanity, communist terrorism. So that was, um, that was the, um, the after, there's always a cause and effect, right? Then I have a couple more quotes I'll have about Kissinger here. Um, what I find amazing is somebody went up to Kissinger and said something to him and he just got nasty and stormed off. Why do these people go out in public? I mean, why do we, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay. Because they use words like, um, Kissinger was then put in charge of a secret committee to make the economy scream, as Nixon put it, Nixon put it, ordering the CIA to subsidize striking trucks workers and provide support to the coup plotters and the military. The U.S. always has their hands on things. I'm too worn out to go into it all, but this is how it all works, okay? They go around, they pay off all these leaders in these different countries, they bring in their people to act like, you know, Black Lives Matter is a CIA. They're all CIA operations, okay? Um, but what they did, it was a ferocious stream of aerial attacks that began in March 69, yeah. They really come up with these crazy names. They called them Breakfast Plan, Operations Menu, where they're murdering people. Um, the, Khmer Rogue was a brutal regime that ruled Cambodia under the leadership of Marxist, Marxist dictator Paul Pot, P-O-L-P-O-T, from 1975 to 1979. And here is where it gets very interesting, okay? Probably the, one of the main reasons I'm bringing up this entire story, because when I ran across this, I thought, hey, wait a minute here. Okay, here's the deal. Marxist dictator, where have you heard this before? Oh, I don't know, like the Marxist people from the Frankfurt School? Okay, so Paul Pot, P-O-L-P-O-T, two words. 
they love those peas, right? Paul Pot's attempts to create a Cambodian master race through social engineering and ultimately led to the deaths of more than two million people in the Southeast Asian country. So this was about creating a master race through social engineering. Gee, doesn't this kind of sound like what we're going through now? Those killed were either executed as enemies of the regime or died from starvation, disease, or overwork. Historically, this period, as shown in the film The Killing Fields, has become to known as a Cambodian genocide. So yeah, um, they say that he didn't come to power, this Paul Pot person, until the mid-70s. But the roots of their takeover can be traced to the 1960s when a communist insurgency first became active in Cambodia, which was then ruled by a monarch. I, I don't know. I certainly notice a whole lot of patterns here, right? Throughout the 1960s, the Khmer Rouge operated as the army wing of the Communist Party, the name of the party used for Cambodia. Operating primarily in remote jungle and mountain areas of the northeast country, so they said that they stayed um, neutral. Well, who else stayed neutral? <laughs> Didn't Switzerland stay neutral to grab up all the stuff out of Germany? Okay, um, I think that's all I have to say. I would, um, it, it's very sad what went on at Columbia, and I would suggest that it was a pretty big genocide, okay? Um, that uh, a lot of people suffered. And remember, these are the same people that are running things now, right? Um, I'm just going to slide through this right now. This is just, it's just, just dreadful stuff, okay? Um, and they always act like everybody else is the enemy, right? Well, that's psychopath training 101. What you do is you declare the other person is who you really are, right? So nobody really pins it on you. Um, there was, you know, everywhere you look, you will find there was a 2021 investigation that I ran across that kind of got this whole thing started. And it was revealed that the U.S. Air air war in Iraq and Syria was marked by flawed intelligence and inaccurate targeting resulting in the deaths of thousands of innocent people finally forced the Defense Department to unveil this plan that I talked about earlier right um, <laughs> so there was this 2021 investigation by the New York Times okay and there's allegations that the U.S. is killing civilians. No, say it's not true. The U.S. killing civilians. Hey, the U.S. is willing to kill their own citizens. All bets are off, right? Okay, so yeah, that's about it. Um, so then they came off with this. It's called the Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plan Fact Sheet, okay? And this is from August of 2022. And that's different than the one I was talking about. This is, <laughs> the one I was talking about was from 2023, okay? I got a little confused here. Because they always come up with these plans, right? This was a civilian harm mitigation and response, August 25th, 2022. The Department of Defense, DOD, released its civilian harm mitigation and response action plan, which lays out a series 
of major actions DOD will implement to mitigate and re respond to civilian harm. <laughs> well, okay. The plan directed creates new institutions and processes that will improve strategic outcomes, optimize military operations, and strengthen DOD's ability to mitigate civilian harm during operations through a re reinforcing framework. It will facilitate continued learning through DOD-enhanced approaches. These actions set forth, and these are the words you want to look for, CHMR-AP. That means Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plan. Boy, they got these plans in place. Hello there, Marcos. Sorry, he's having a hard time. They're really gassing the crap out of my house. Um, the power company was in the area the other day, and I think they put a smart I, um, transformer on somebody's house down the street, and I've got to follow up on that. If you want to find out who the enemies are in your neighborhood, go on Google Maps, okay? I show you the picture of the transformer over on my website, psychopathinyourlife.com, and click on um, smart meters, and you'll see what a transformer looks like. Go on Google Maps and cruise around your old neighborhood. See who you find in your neighborhood that also has transformers near their houses. Um, use those eyes. We all have a set of eyes and ears, right? Um, so yeah, these things are pretty easy to solve if people just get off social media and go looking, right? Also, I did a video of all the ways these people transgender themselves, the elites and how they're transgendering the kids, and it got taken down by YouTube for some stupid reason, but anyway, I put a clip of the video. If you click on the tab on a website called Elite Transgenders, Right there at the top of the page, you can click on that link, and it's about a 10-minute video. I'm likely not going to be putting it back up on YouTube. I'm not really that engaged. So if you want to see that video and understand how the hormones work, then I would suggest you go over there and look at it. I thought about it, and I thought, well, if people are too lazy to go and click on my click at my website, why do I want to go and... Because if you have a show taken down by YouTube, what happens is this. They mark the entire thing. So it's not an easy matter. So the show they took down, for example, in order to play it again, I would have to completely reconstruct the whole show. Not going to do it. At least not right now. So go click over there and you'll see the whole show right there. But I found that people who stay on certain platforms don't want to move to other platforms. And hey, that's great. Stay over there if you want to stay over there. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, there's all this about this civilian harm thing, which starts to sound like it makes sense, right? Until you really realize all the things that I read to you, right? About what they really do to civilians, right? So let me close off with this. It was an article called Henry Kissinger's History Henry Kissinger History's Bloodiest Social Climber, and it's from The Intercept. So, it was written May the 27th. Everybody, everybody's talking about Kissinger because he's 100, right? Okay. In 2002, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and his wife, Nancy, <laughs> that tall man, attended an elegant dinner party hosted by Barbara Walters. Other participants included Time Magazine editor Henry Grenwald, one-time ABC chair Thomas Murphy, and Peter Jennings, then the anchor of ABC World News Tonight. At one point in the evening, as New York Magazine recounted, Jennings addressed Kissinger and asked him, 
how does it feel to be a war criminal, Henry? Kissinger did not respond. However, Grunwald informed Jennings that his inquiry was unsuitable. Walters, who considered Kissinger the most loyal friend, later said, I tried to change the subject, but it was a very uncomfortable moment. Kissinger's wife, Nancy, reacted very strongly and heard. There are several notable things about this. First, the people at the top of American society absolutely love Henry Kissinger. He is their beloved compatriot, and they are anxious to protect his delicate feelings. Second, Jennings sincerely believed that Kissinger was a war criminal and unusually was willing, unusually, excuse me, was willing to say this in private. Yet he didn't have the courage to say this in public to his audience of tens of thousands of Americans, tens of millions of Americans. Presumably, he then would no longer be invited to these sorts of parties. Third, Kissinger's fancy, famous, rich pals are not exact, will not exactly dispute that Kissinger is a monster. Rather, bringing it up is an embarrassing social faux pas, like, say, mentioning how everybody knows that your buddy is cheating on his wife, who is sitting next to you. Why would you want to spoil the mood just when we're all feeling toasty from the Chamberlain Grand Crew and having such a lovely time? Think of how Kissinger lives, ensconced in the silken embrace of wealth and power. When you read Nick, the person named Nick Terse, T-U-R-S-E, over at the Intercept, wrote an expose, all things Kissinger, okay? I used a couple of his quotes. So, Kissinger, it turns out, was responsible for even more misery and deaths in the U.S. bombings of Cambodia that was already known, which is truly saying something. At top of the pyramid, Kissinger enjoys endless banquets and oceans of acclamation. During the Nixon administration, Kissinger was beloved by Hollywood, often literally. He spoke at the 1996 funeral for a less prominent war criminal, Thomas Enders, an event also attended by David Rockefeller, John D.'s grandson, and let me see. The standard of living of the average American has to decline. Oh, wait a minute. This is a quote from the CEO of Chase Manhattan, Paul Volcker, who said, why, I don't, the standard of living of the average American has to decline. <laughs> At the height of the Iraq war, Vice President Dick Cheney reported that I probably talk to Henry Kissinger more than I talk to anybody else. He just comes by. Hillary Clinton referred to Kissinger as a friend, and I relied on his counsel when I served as Secretary of State. Clinton rearranged her schedule, giving an award to designer Oscar De La Renta, so both she and De La Renta could attend Kissinger's 90th birthday. In 2014, he attended a Yankees game with noted humanitarian Samantha Power. I wonder if that's the same power that was with, what's his face? Okay. In 2014, he attended a Yankees game with noted humanitarian Samantha Power, who later received an award both named after and presented to her by Kissinger. He served on the board of the fraudulent company Theranos. Remember Theranos with the blood thing? With Jim Mathis, the Marine Corps general who'd go on to be 
Donald Trump, Secretary of Defense, and George Shultz, who was Secretary of State for Ronald Reagan. They were all involved in that Theranos, Silicon Valley scam, right? That's what they do. What they do is they put all these high-level people, right, who are probably mostly high, right, um, <laughs> on these boards, and then they say to the rest of the people, oh, look, 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 Henry Kissinger's on the board. Now, don't you want to invest too? It is such a simple and stupid scam. We really have become quite stupid. Quite, quite stupid. President company excluded, of course. Okay. And this is good. Uh, Kissinger joked that he didn't ask questions of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, because we were all afraid of her. This week, the Washington Post granted Kissinger's son, David, Kissinger has a son named David. David is the president of Conan O'Brien's production company. So, so his son David, they said, to tell us that to enjoy his 100th birthday, Kissinger is participating in centennial celebrations that will take him from New York to London and finally to his hometown in Firth, Germany. One of the kickoff events was held at the Yale Club in Manhattan. Then consider those down at the bottom of the pyramid, the Cambodians, Vietnamese, Laotians, Timorians, Pakistanians, Latin Americans, and many more whose lives and bodies were torn to shreds by Kissinger. The many more here include U.S. soldiers who, who Kissinger referred to as dumb, stupid animals to be used, and that is a quote by Kissinger, he said that U.S. soldiers were dumb, stupid animals to be used. So, um, and then there was a quote, and it says, here is what Terse writes about one such person he met while recording in Cambodia. Round-faced and just over five feet tall in plastic sandals, Mies Lorn, L-O-R-N, lost an older brother to a helicopter gunship attack and an uncle and cousins to artillery fire. For decades, one question haunted her. I still wonder why those aircraft always attacked in this area. Why did they drop bombs here? But Mies Lorn will never ever get an answer. Terse describes an encounter with Kissinger when he was able to pass her inquiry along. When pressed about the substance of the question that Cambodians were bombed and killed, Kissinger became visibly angry. What are you trying to prove, he growled. And then when I refused to give up, he cut me off. Play with it, he told me. Have a good time, as he stormed off. I asked him to answer May Lorne's question. Why did they drop bombs there? He refused. I'm not smart enough for you, Kissinger said sarcastically. As he stomped his cane, I lack your intelligence and moral quality, he stalked off. Play with it. It is embracing indeed to understand that the people who run this country find this kind of human being charming and delightful. It makes you wonder if there are any killers from history who they would not celebrate, assuming the killers have conducted their slaughter with the aim of keeping America's elites rich, warm, and safe beyond a flax of guns. Yes, well... That's it, right? That is it. So that is the story of I think that you're going to need to think for yourself. Who is a criminal here? It looks to me, uh, because this all happened, because on March the 23rd, 
excuse me, March 2023, ICC judges issued arrest warrants for Russian leader Vladimir Putin. <laughs> so that's what this story is all about. They're issuing um, things for, um, I don't have the energy to read this story. Um, the story is called, Everything Was Completely Destroyed. I'll find the energy. It's important. Okay. Less than a month after Kissinger and Haig began planning the secret bombings of Cambodia, the U.S. launched Operation Menu, a callously titled collection of B-52 raids codenamed Breakfast, Lunch, Snack, Dinner, Dessert, and Supper that were carried out from March the 18th, 1969 to May the 26th, 1970. And we're right... 1970. The attacks were kept secret through multiple layers of deception. Kissinger approved each one of the 3,875 of them. Survivors say that living through a B-52, my father flew B-52s also, by the way, uh, surviving. Survivors say that living through a B-52 bombing is unimaginably terrifying, bordering on the apocalyptic. Within minutes, the confines of a deep well-built bomb shelter the concussive force oh the force shatters the eardrums one morning at the end of a busted dirt and gravel road near the Vietnamese border they found this person called Than T-H-A-M 78 years old at the time with a short head of bristly gray hair and mouth stained red with juice from this nut Bofu and his sister a 72 year old broke down as soon as I explained the purpose of my reporting. So this was a reporter who went back to this area to try to find these people. I can't read this. They were away from their home when the B-52 wiped out 17 members of their family. I lost my mother, father, sister, brothers, everyone. Everything was completely destroyed. I'll force myself to read it. That's where one foot in front of the other. We can't turn away from this. That's how we got here. Exposed by North Vietnam's Hanoi Radio and confirmed by the New York Times in May 1969, the secret bombings of Cambodia was officially denied and unknown to the public and the relative co congressional committees of the time. Congress and the American people were kept so deep in the dark that on April the 30th, 1970, as he announced the first publicly avowed U.S. ground invasion of Cambodia, to strike at suspected enemy base areas. Nixon could barely lie, telling the country, for five years, neither the United States nor South Vietnam has moved against these enemies' sanctuaries because we did not wish to violate the territory of a neutral nation. And that's what they said after they had bombed these people into oblivion. It was only in 1973, give me a second here, 
it was only in 1973 during the Watergate scandal that the secret bombing allegations came to the fore, prompting the first effort to impeach Nixon on the grounds that he had waged a secret war in a neutral nation in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Eventually, that article of impeachment was voted down in the name of political expediency in the face of other charges. Yeah, I guess it wasn't politically expedient to talk about all those people in Cambodia that they mowed down in their homes, now was it? What they would do is they put out alarms, okay? And the alarms would get people to run from their homes. When they ran from their homes, they would use them as targets, okay? That was in essentially unpopulated areas, and I don't believe it had any significant casualties, Kissinger told this reporter in 2010. He was at a conference titled, The American Experience in Southeast Asia, 1946 to 1975, and he was questioned. When I questioned this other person talking, not me, when I questioned him about the bombing, it was effectively the same reply he offered British journalists David Frost during a 1979 NBC News interview in which Frost charged that Kissinger's Cambodia policy set in motion a series of events that would destroy the country. Kissinger stormed out of the studio after the taping and Frost quit the project, alleging interference by NBC, which then also employed Kissinger as a consultant and commentator. NBC later released a transcript of the interview, but allowed Kissinger to amend his comments through an attached letter. And the letter said, We did not start to destroy a country from anybody's point of view when we were bombing several seven isolated North Vietnamese base attacks within some five miles of the Vietnamese border, from which attacks were being launched into South Vietnam, Kissinger told Frost. In typical fashion of seizing on discrepancies and muddying debates, he accurately denied Frost's contention that Base Area 704 was bombed, a mistake stemming from a typographical error in a Pentagon document during the secret B-52 attacks, noting that Base Area 704 was actually attacked. He said, this is Kissinger, <clears throat> he said recommendations of targets were accompanied by a statement that civilian casualties were expected to be minimal. There were, in fact, 1,136 civilians living in Base Area 740, according to the Pentagon, a former top-secret Air Force report declassified decades after the Frost interview noted that only 250 enemy forces were present there. An Army document that I discovered in the National Archives also notes that the military was aware that civilians were wounded, killed by B-52 attacks in Base Area 740. So, yeah, according to the confidential case file, those slain and injured were Montagnards, M-O-T-A-G-N-A-R-D-S, a member of an ethnic minority whose hamlets were not accurately reflected on commonly used maps. Yeah, there's always a reason why they can kill these people, isn't it? Um, the results of Dick, excuse me, Dixon's, the results of Nixon's December 1970 telephone tirade and Kissinger's order to set anything that flies on anything that moves were media palpable. 
During that month, sorties by U.S. helicopters and bombers tripled in number. Soon after, in May 1971, U.S. helicopter gunships shot up a Cambodian village, wounding a young girl who couldn't be taken for treatment because a U.S. officer overloaded his helicopter. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll just tell you this story, okay? Um, they s were stealing and looting, okay? And they stole this um, scooter. I guess they couldn't even leave them something to get around on. And they couldn't take this girl who they wounded away because they had this stolen merchandise. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. How many similar killings occurred will never be known. Cover-ups were common. Investigations were rarely undertaken. And crimes generally evaporated with the fog of war. So yeah, there's I uh, I'm gonna stop here. Um, it's all about the war, right? And remember, uh, remember, remember. Uh, I'll close with this part. As Cambodians lay wounded and dying, the Rangers looted the village, grabbing ducks, chickens, wallets, clothing, cigarettes, tobacco, civilian radios and other non-military items, according to numerous American witnesses. They were stealing everything they could get their hands on. So, and they said they had the biggest score of all. With the help of South Vietnamese troops, he hauled a blue Suzuki motorcycle onto a helicopter, according to Army documents. And, um... Uh, well, I'm kind of out of words to say. I hope this has still been recording. Let me check here. <laughs> Okie dokie. What I'm going to be playing is a song. I never really listen to Metallica and those people. Uh, and uh, I would just like you to digest all of this. Uh, it sounds to me like the laws were written to protect these people, right? Sounds to me like the exact same people are still in charge. Sounds to me like they're a bunch of bullies and also cowards, right? Remember, behind every bully is a coward. So why would why would Kissinger and his ugly Nancy get so offended by people calling them war criminals? Because they are arrogant psychopaths. We are beneath them in all ways possible. So what's the plan? Well, I don't know. I know what my plan is, but what's your plan? Everybody gotta just sit around and just let these people keep taking it? So anyways, I gotta stop. The song Metallica. It is called. It sounds very appropriate. These songs find me. I don't find them, okay? It just showed up. Never been to a Metallica concert. Never even really thought about them. And the song is Fight Fire with Fire, okay?
I'm actually just listening to this song for the very first time. Um, yeah, like I said, these songs find me, just like the help I'm getting. So yeah, um, <laughs> Metallica, Fight Fire with Fire. Um, I had something to say, now I forgot. Okay, I'll keep playing, I'll remember. So yeah, pretty strange that this song found me today, isn't it? <laughs> got to many people in the United States. I think people are just too busy on social media to fight fire with fire, right? <laughs> Be safe out there. Goodbye for now.